Hey folks, thanks for joining us at Fig Tree Ministries. There's two ways you can keep up with us. The first one is to subscribe to our YouTube channel by clicking the subscribe button below. That way you'll get notified every time we upload a new video. The second way is to go to figtreeteaching.com and sign up for our newsletter. We send out a newsletter twice per month. Each newsletter will highlight one of our videos and include a lesson plan to help you go deeper into your studies. That website again is figtreeteaching.com. Enjoy today's lesson. Okay, so if, if you want to open up your Bible this morning, if you have it in front of you, to Acts chapter 13, and you can clearly see just by opening up our Bible to Acts 13, we've shifted gears out of Revelation and going backwards in a sense to some of the stuff that's happening in Acts and with Paul. But the reason I want to do that is we're going to move one region over within the Roman Empire to a region known as Galatia. And Paul is going to go travel through that region and eventually write a letter to the churches of that region. So we're going to look at what's Paul up to on some of these, particularly the first missionary journey. And a lot of it is going to come out of Acts. So over the next few weeks, we'll pull out all kinds of stuff just from the book of Acts and Galatia and some of the cities there to see what God has going on and what Paul is up to and how the kingdom of God is moving, really. It's just, it's just such an amazing way that Luke has the book of Acts structured to talk about the advancement of the kingdom of God. God willing, we'll look at that next weekend. But today, we'll start with a city called Pisidian Antioch, or Antioch of Pisidia. There's, I think there's seven Antiochs. It gets very confusing because they named all these cities, kind of like every time a Roman, somebody under Roman power builds a city, they call it Caesarea. And then you have, you have to qualify it. Well, is it Caesarea Maritime, Caesarea Philippi? Is it the new Caesarea that we saw in Philadelphia? Is it... Tiberius Caesarea, which was Sardis, so it gets a little bit mind-boggling when uh, you try to figure out which city you're actually at. Okay, so Acts 13, then if you have your hand out in front of you, that'll help you go through with all of these, with the details. So the first thing we want to note is that we're going to be in a region called Galatia. I'll show you this on a map in a minute. We talked about Galatia a little bit back when we were at the city of Pergamum because the kingdom of Pergamum had fended off some attacks by these people who came down from Europe called the Gauls. And they pushed them way out into the middle of nowhere in the central part of Turkey, and the Gauls settled there, and they call it Galatia. It's the place where the Gauls settled. So we did talk about that a little bit. And then Paul goes wandering through there to some of the cities, and then eventually writes a letter to the cities. And if you notice at the beginning of Galatia, the letter to Galatians, it says to the churches of Galatia. So he's not addressing it to one single church, he's addressing it to a number of churches. So the cities that we'll see are today, Pisidian Antioch, then there's a city called Iconium, Lystra, we've been there before and we'll go there again, and then the final city is Derby, and 
those scholars consider to be the four cities of Galatia that Paul's writing to, but you should know, there's just like everything in religious topics, there's a debate on this. And so I put a footnote on your sheet that says, this study, we're going to take the view of the Southern theory, meaning the Southern cities of Galatia. Some scholars argue for a Northern theory, but we're going to stick with the Southern theory, and that tends to be the most popular one. But I just want you to know, there's always a disagreement within religions. All right, so that's our four cities in Galatia. Now let me go just do a quick overview of what we're going to look at in the chapter 13 of Acts, because we have to follow this, this flow. Luke is putting together very detailed a flow that's going to help us understand where's Paul going, and who's he talking to, and then there's some changes that happen in this little period. So this is going to be our overview. Acts 13 starts out Barnabas and Saul, and we have to notice his name in, in Acts 13 starts out Saul. That's his birth given name, Shaul, we would say anglicized Saul. So it starts out Barnabas and Saul. They end up going to the island of Cyprus, and so we're going to ask the question, why did they go there first? What's, what would prompt them to go in that direction, besides the Holy Spirit? When we don't have an answer, Acts tells us it's the Holy Spirit. When they get to Cyprus, they're going to go to synagogues. That's going to be important. We have to notice the pattern that Paul's going to use as he moves from city to city and for good reason why he's using that. While they're on Cyprus, they meet a fellow named Sergius Paulus. This enters the story in a very coincidental way. Now, we can't put our finger on it, but there's some things that scholars say, aha, why is Luke telling us about this guy? From the time they meet Sergius Paulus, Paul heads north to a city called Pisidian Antioch. That's where we're going to go. It's the city of Antioch that lies in the region of Pisidia, or Pisidian. Then, by the end of the chapter, we see the same people, but they're going to be in a different order. And by the end of the chapter, it's Paul now and Barnabas. Why the switch? Why the switch from here, Barnabas and Saul, down to here, Paul and Barnabas? And that's going to be one of the questions that we're asking and one of the questions that scholars dive into as they're looking at chapter 13. Okay, as we've done in the past, let me go geography-wise so we understand where we're heading. So we have the Mediterranean Sea. We've seen this almost 18 weeks in a row now. Israel off to the east, the very eastern edge of the Roman Empire. And then for the past 17 weeks, we spent all of our time up here in a, the province, the Roman province of Asia Minor, very Greek along the coast. We saw that last week with Smyrna. And then all those seven cities that we visited all are inside that circle. And so much of your New Testament happens inside that circle. So just to the east of Asia Minor, is a province called Galatia. That's where we're going to go today. 
So we'll end up there, and you have to ask the question again, why, why is Paul going here? Because what we'll see is Galatia is out in the middle of nowhere. I felt like, you know, one time I traveled through the eastern side of Montana, and if you've been through the eastern side of Montana, you know what it's like going from town to town that are 20 miles apart. Maybe it's going through West Texas or something. That's what, I, that's what Galatia's like. You drive for hours. You don't see anything, just nothing but fields. So it's in the middle of nowhere, very isolated. And that's even today. So when Paul was there, we know it must have been significantly less populated. Anyways, Paul starts, he's going to start this journey at one of the Antiochs. It's Syrian Antioch. It's the Antioch that's famous for the place where Christians were first called Christians. And of course, the Eastern Orthodox Church of Antioch comes out of this city, Antioch. So they start over in that city, Antioch, and they go to the island of Cyprus. We'll ask, why did they go to Cyprus? And then something compels them from Cyprus to go north. They get off in an area called Pamphylia, and then they go even further north to the city where we'll go, Pisidian Antioch. So this is the route we're going to take this morning. If we go closer, you can see here's the seven cities. That's all Asia Minor over here, the Roman province. And then Galatia lies off here, off to the east. And we have the four cities that we mentioned that are inside of Galatia. That's Anti or Pisidian Antioch, Antioch of Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and then Derby. And we'll see both this week, next week, Paul is going to travel those four cities and then swing back around to go home. So again, just to give you guys the, an overview of where we're going, he's starting out in Syrian Antioch. They're going to head south to the island of Cyprus. Then from Cyprus, they're going to sail north to a place called Pamphylia. And then from there, head up to literally the middle of nowhere, Pisidian Antioch. And you have to ask the question, what the heck are you doing there, Paul? Because it kind of doesn't make sense. You would think if Paul wants to go change the world, Head to Ephesus, go to Smyrna, go to, go to those cities that we saw where, where the thriving cultural centers of, of the Roman Empire go there. So why does he go here? Well, that's, what, that's the question we'll ask. Okay, so Pisidian Antioch, what I want to do is just some data about Pisidian Antioch to give you um, just, a, it's, it's going to be a shift as far as cities go. So the first thing, as I mentioned, it's out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, I think we went, drove for two hours, barely saw a city. Um, there's a small city right next to it today, and obviously you can go there. I'll show you some pictures of the ruins. They're not, it's not well kept like Ephesus or some of the other cities. Not a lot of money because the visitors are down. But anyways, you can see just the picture from <laughs> You're just looking around, and it's like you're just in the middle of nowhere. So the first thing we note about Pisidian Antioch is that in, in Paul's day, sorry, in Paul's day, it's a Roman colony. Now, the city had been there for a long time. Antiochus had settled it. It was a Greek colony. Then when Rome came in, they settled it as a Roman colony, and they rebuilt it. That's important to note. Now, colonizing, we'll talk a little bit more about colonizing. If you say to somebody today, colonization, it tends to be a bad word. 
um, because what we've seen in our past is the abuses that come along with a powerful country going out to colonize, say colonize, colonization of Africa or the colonization of India. or So we tend to get a bad word, even though it doesn't have to be. The idea of the colony is they couldn't control. The, the Galatian people were very tribal, almost you know, kind of like Afghanistan. You're never going to control those tribes because they don't operate that way. So the, the Galatians were very tribal. And so what you did was just set up a number of cities, Roman colonies. You put Roman citizens there, and you try to influence the region around you by those people living there. So you're colonizing on behalf of Rome. Um, and so what happened in 25 BC was Caesar Augustus would take his soldiers that were mustering out of the army, and he would reward them with land and put them in a city like Pisidian Antioch. So if you go there today, it's not well built like, a, like Ephesus. Ephesus, is so, they have so many visitors, and they've done so much to rebuild it. You go there today, that's the main gate. So it doesn't look like much. Again, kind of just stones in the middle of the field, but that's the main gate to Pisidian Antioch. And what we notice, and this is what archaeologists notice, the, as they, oh, University of Michigan, by the way, University of Michigan did all the archaeology back in the 30s. What they noted was everything's Roman. So even though you're way out in the east side, in the middle of nowhere, when they rebuilt that city, they put everything Roman. So if I, I didn't put any pictures of, of, the, of any of the inscriptions, but if I did, they're all in Latin. So we'd have someone on the call today who could, who could transcribe all those from Latin into English, but I didn't put any pictures of the inscriptions. But everything's in Latin, and that, of course, is different because you go to the Greek cities, everything's in Greek. But you see, the art is all like Roman soldiers because they settled Roman soldiers. So you get, you know, shields and spears, and you get Roman eagles, and you get centurion helmets, and so everything about it is pure Rome. Scholars are always trying to figure out you know, as they go into a city and you see these ruins or you see something like the street pavement there, is it a later date or is it something that, say, Paul would have known? And they put this, like, for instance, that road right there, they put it back into the first century. So what we're walking up on that road right there, Paul would have walked up. If John passed through there, he would have walked up that street. And it doesn't make it holier than any other place in the world, but it is kind of cool to think about that someone built a road that's still there today that Paul and the disciples may have walked on. So Pisidian Antioch, Rome, Rome, Roman colony. When they rebuilt it, they rebuilt it into seven districts to match the city of Rome. So they actually, this became the capital of all the cities in Galatia, and it was built to look exactly like Rome was. So you get a little piece of Rome way out in the east. Then the final thing is, is the imperial cult. And, you know, all my pictures, it's very difficult to capture how big this place is. There's a sanctuary to Caesar Augustus, and this is a picture of it. And it's just so difficult to tell how big it is. And they carved out, it's like a semicircle in the rock. So this big rock wall back here is carved out to be a semicircle. The place is huge. In the middle of it, these rocks right here, that's a temple to Caesar Augustus. 
because you get the imperial cult, and they built it to match Rome. So it's huge. It's, it's, it's just unbelievable, and you can find artist renderings on the internet. It's just amazing what they did. So Caesar worship. We've, we've had that before. The Roman imperial cult is going to be big here because they're, the whole place is Rome. Okay, so that's Pisidian Antioch. That's where we're going to end up. And it's just, I just wanted to give you some data. And this, might, this leads some, some scholars to think, why did Paul go there? What was it about that place that he thought, you know what, that's going to be a good place for me to land? Okay, now that's Pisidian Antioch. Let me switch gears for a minute. I want to address something about Paul. So we call him Paul. That's his Greek name that he takes on. His given name, Shaul, or we would say Saul. What I want to address about Paul is, for a long time, historically, everybody made Paul Greek. They said Paul grew up and he was born in Tarsus. He must have been educated as a Greek, in Greek philosophy, in Greek ways of thinking. Well, that's totally the opposite of what Paul tells us in Scripture. So, Paul, as a kid, he goes and he becomes a disciple to become a rabbi. So, he's on the path to becoming a rabbi. And we don't think of him that way because he never takes the title as rabbi. But that's where he was going as a kid. And he studied in Jerusalem under a figure named Gamaliel, Rabbi Gamaliel. Now, for most of us, when, when we go to this verse in a second here, we read past this and we never think twice, who the heck is Gamaliel? Because we don't have any context to put it in there. But when we look at this passage, Paul is talking to people in Jerusalem. He's at the Temple Mount. He's speaking Hebrew. And he says, don't forget, I studied here under Gamaliel. And at that moment, everybody knows he's not a Greek, right? You don't study under Gamaliel and play club soccer all, all your life as a teenager. You just, it doesn't happen. It would be similar to someone's, if someone said, hey, where'd you go to college? I went to Princeton. What'd you study? Well, physics. Who'd you study under? Albert Einstein. Oh, that type of physics. That's who you studied under. Gamaliel is the grandson of one of the greatest rabbis in, in Judaism, Rabbi Hillel. Go to any college in America and you get a Hillel student center. Even at San Diego State, there's a Hillel student center. So this is a big deal. And uh, we miss that. We miss that when we read because we don't quite understand who Gamaliel is. And we'll talk more about how Gamaliel defends the early Christians. But So let me show you one verse or, or a couple passages. Sorry. Don't turn there because we don't have... To, well, you can turn there if you want, but I'm going to keep going. This is Acts 22. Paul goes into the temple, and the people are riled up. They think Paul is coming there to desecrate the temple some way. They're accusing him of bringing Greeks, Gentiles, into the temple area. And Paul has to defend himself, and when he begins to defend himself, he says this. The verse says, when they're all silent, he said to them in Hebrew. Now, if you look in your Bible, some of your Bibles say Aramaic. Some of your Bibles say Hebrew. Some of your Bibles say Aramaic and have a footnote that says, or Hebrew. 
Some of them just say, spoke in their native language, like they didn't want to choose one or the other. The point is, is for a long time, scholars said, ah, Hebrew was a dead language, they only spoke Aramaic. And then we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, and people started to question that and say, well, wait a minute, they're all written in Hebrew, though there's some Aramaic in there. So if you look at the Greek word in this passage from Acts, it's, it says Hebrew. And so I put it down as Hebrew because, well, I think when Paul spoke to them in Hebrew, in a, as we'll see in a minute, they started paying attention. Okay, he says, brothers and fathers, listen, to now, or listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak it to them in Hebrew, they became very quiet. Because if Paul starts speaking in Hebrew, he's no Greek that lives out in the diaspora and only speaks Greek. And once he starts speaking to them in Hebrew, they pay attention. So he says this, then Paul says, I'm a Jew. Yeah, I'm born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but I was brought up in this city, and that's Jerusalem. I studied under Gamaliel, and I was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. And as we know from Paul's early days, I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. And you may think about the idea that if this is, this is later in Paul's ministry, when the zealots in Jerusalem are becoming very agitated about what's happening, and so you get a lot of zealot-type action. And of course, Paul is addressing them as zealots. So, so Paul, he's, as he goes out, he's not simply a Greek trained and then has the good news. He's a trained rabbi. He knows all the text. He knows all the commandments. He knows everything about everything he needs to know. By his own admission, he calls himself a Pharisee and that he was a zealot. So the zealots were just like the Pharisees, except they resorted to violence. Well, that's what Paul does. So in Philippians 3, 5 and 6, and I'll just do this real quick, Paul is kind of, he's giving his bona fides to the people at Philippi. And he says, look, I'm a Jew, right? I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel. He, he drops this in there. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning I speak Hebrew. In regard to the law, I'm a Pharisee. As for zeal, I persecuted the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Now, what he's saying there is that he kept all the commandments. He was adamant about keeping the commandments. So by Paul's own admission, and so the reason, again, I say this is that we have to reframe our way that we look at Paul um, and say, you know, he wasn't as Greek as sometimes we make him out to be. He shows up as a Jew, even though he takes on a Greek name and we call him a Greek name, um, he is 100% and he's always defending his Judaism. He says, look, I didn't stop being a Jew. I just now believe that Jesus is Messiah. And then the last one, of course, is he still claims to be a Pharisee. He claims that in Acts 23, which is later on in his ministry. So those are just two things or some things about Paul that I, we, we need to think about so that we don't misunderstand as he's going out in all this missionary type stuff. How he talks to the people is very much in the rabbinic style. Okay, now what I want to do. That's a little bit about Paul. So we talked a little bit about Antioch Pisidia. 
We talked a little bit about Paul, and so what I'd like you to do is open to Acts 13, and we're going to go through now and look at some of these verses as the story begins to unfold. And there's details that Luke is putting in that we want to pay attention to that might give us some clues as to what may, what's making Paul do certain things. Okay, so starting at verse 1. Now, the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. And they're going to list some names here. We have Barnabas. We have Simeon called Niger. Lucius of Cyrene. Manian, and this is interesting, he was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. So Herod Antipas, apparently, this person was in his household, or at least operated with him, and then became a Christian, maybe after seeing what Herod did uh, with Jesus through Pilate. But anyways, it's just an interesting thing to note, who's in the crowd. And then it says, and Saul. Now notice, where does Saul show up on the list? He's at the end, and it's in if we think about it in Jewish fashion, you're always going to put the leader first. So notice Barnabas appears first, and Saul is down here, which means Barnabas is in lead. And that's how we would read at least the next verse that looks like this, verse 2, while they were worshiping and the with the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart Barnabas and Saul. And so right there, you notice Barnabas is in the lead at this moment. Now it's going to switch, but the way Luke puts that tells you he's taking, he's taking the lead on it. You always put the leader first. Okay. So that's uh, Acts 13, 1 and verse 2, just pointing out Barnabas and Saul. Now, let's go to, I'm going to jump down to Acts 13, verse 4, because this is going to tell us where they're going. The two of them were sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. Now, we'll talk more about this next week, because the book of Acts, it's so cool how the Holy Spirit is moving and moving and moving and moving. and Luke is always using the Holy Spirit as the director of what's going on behind the scenes. So the two of them, sent by the way of the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and then sailed from there to Cyprus. Now, first question, why Cyprus? Why did they sail to Cyprus? Why not walk around or sail along the coast, you know, towards Ephesus or because the Bible never really tells us where they're going. We just see that they set sail for Cyprus. So why would they go to Cyprus? Well, where's Barnabas from? And so real quick, don't turn there, but let me just show you. It, it's on your sheet. In Acts 4, verse 36, is where we learn about Barnabas. His real name, Joseph, is a Levite from Cyprus. So right there, you see, you can imagine, hey, we're going out to tell the good news about God. Barnabas says, well, let's just go to Cyprus because I know everybody there. My family's there. We have support there. We, when we go to the synagogues there, they're going to know who I am. It starts to make sense that this isn't as random as sometimes we think Paul's journeys are, although 
I think it does get a little bit random. So he's a Levite. That's the other important thing. So he's not a, he's not a Pharisee. A Levite would be of the Sadducee group. So he's connected to the temple, a Levite, and he becomes a follower of Jesus. Now it says, whom the apostles called Barnabas. And then Luke's going to explain to us what that name means. The son of encouragement. So one thing we need to note is the word bar, that's an Aramaic word. In Hebrew, it would be ben, but Aramaic, bar equals son. So he's the son of encouragement. And we're going to see that a little bit later on in the chapter, another person who's calling themselves bar and then something. So why go to Cyprus? Because Barnabas is from Cyprus. So you have Barnabas up there, right? And then that means, of course, son of encouragement. All right, back to Acts 13. Now verse 5. So they're, they arrive over at Cyprus. When they arrive at Salamis, they proclaim the word of God. And where do they go first? To the synagogues. So sometimes we think, well, Paul is the apostle to the Greeks or to the Gentiles, that he just walked out and walked into a Gentile city and said, hey, everybody, Jesus is Messiah. But he doesn't. His model is every city he goes to, and we'll see this even when he gets upset with the Jews and tells them, I'm going to stop going to you, he ends up going back to the synagogues because that's where his Bible is, right? He's the Messiah is coming out of the Old Testament. The first place you have to go to talk about the Messiah is to those who have all of the data on the Messiah. Uh, that's, the, that's the synagogue. So John was with him as the helper. And of course, it's that word right there, synagogues, that we have to pay attention to. And as we see in the book of Acts, that that's where Paul is going to go to over and over and over and over. Now, something about the synagogues, because we, we sometimes maybe uh, we don't have enough detail to understand who's in the crowd. So every synagogue that he goes to, and you find this all over that Greco-Roman world, is you're going to have two people in the audience. You're going to have the Jews, of course. They live in the, in the diaspora outside of Israel, and they have their synagogue. But they're not the only people in the crowd. And very often, it's the next group of people that's reacting so positively to the good news. And that's what we call God-fearers, or the Gentiles who worship God. So in every synagogue, you've always got Gentiles who have attached themselves to the synagogue, but they don't convert. They're not going through the full conversion process to become a Jew. They're simply remaining a Gentile, but they worship the God of Israel. They love everything about the God of Israel, but they don't go full throttle and become a Jew. So it's important to note that, that at everywhere they go, you're, you're always going to be talking to two groups of people. And it seems the God-fearers love the good news, because that says, hey, you're allowed in the synagogue through Jesus, and you don't have to go through the whole pr conversion process, which then gets the regular Jews upset. Let's go back to Acts 13.6. Now, here's where 
This one just makes me chuckle. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There, they met a Jewish sorcerer a fall and false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus. Now, what does Bar mean? Son. So what's this guy calling himself? See, you thought the Da Vinci Code was the first book that ever came out and said that someone said Jesus had a kid. Nope, Acts. So here's some false prophet, Jewish sorcerer, probably someone who, who divines the future, because we'll see he's going to be hanging out with a fairly important guy as, a, uh, as an advisor. But he's calling himself, and you could imagine the confusion, right? You have this story of Jesus who died and resurrected, and this whole movement that's expanding out of Jerusalem, and this guy shows up and call, calling himself Bar-Jesus, the son of Jesus, and maybe he's making false claims that, you know, he was my dad, that gives me special powers, he's the son of God, and now, now I've got the divine nature too. I mean, you could imagine how crazy it would get with all kinds of weird claims. But anyways. The guy is making the claim that he's the son of Jesus. Now, who's he hanging out with? And this is one of the most important things in our chapter today. Verse 7. Bar, the guy Bar-Jesus was the attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. Now again, if we don't have context to what's being said right there, we read past it. We just go... Proconsul, Sergius Paul, some name I can't, I can barely say. And then we just keep going on and we notice, hey, the guy converts and that's pretty cool. But what's a proconsul? Well, this is a high ranking Roman official. So uh, maybe you could equate to a high ranking diplomat, maybe even Secretary of State, probably not that high, but so, he's the, he is the proconsul to Cyprus to the entire island on behalf of the Roman government. So this is, no, this is not someone who's on the down and outs who wants to follow Jesus. He's in full power, and he's a full Roman citizen, and he pledges his allegiance every year to the, to the Caesar, and he's an intelligent and wealthy man. You don't get to that position if you don't have some kind of wealth and intelligence. So this is a very important person, and part of the reason we think, of course, Luke is writing it because the audience is going to know who, who Sergius Paulus is. And if he converts to Christianity, what are the implications? This is not just a peasant movement now. So it says the proconsul, an intelligent man sent for Barnabas and Saul. Notice it's still Barnabas and Saul. Nothing's changed yet because he wanted to hear the word of God. Now, the story goes on that they, they talk to him Bar-Jesus gets really upset about it. Paul goes through some stuff, and he gets blinded, and we're not really going to talk about that. I want to focus on Sergius Paulus. And then it says he believes them. And this is just an amazing little bit of, it's almost, Paul's first convert is some high-ranking Roman official. This is, a, this is a big deal. So watch what happens next. Look at verse 9, how verse 9 starts. Then Saul, who was, also, or who was called Paul. This place, this point right here in the book of Acts, is the very first place that you see his name change. 
And from this point forward, except when Paul is telling the story how Jesus called him, Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's called Paul. Why? Now, people often think, well, God changed his name. But the, the, the text never says that, right? In fact, the name changes right here in the middle of the story, just after meeting a guy named Sergius Paulus, by the way. And then it says this. This is 13, Acts 13, 14. The mo- right after they're done with him, from Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. So the question is, we have two questions. Why did Paul change his name right there? Or why does his name change? Why does Luke put the name change in the middle of the story? And why Pisidian Antioch? Well, who, who's his first convert? Sergius Paulus. So Sergius Paulus. Paul doesn't take the name Paul. He takes the name Paulus. And so scholars think he, he converts a Roman. You know, up until then, he's been meeting Jews. He converts a Roman. And now, you know, maybe, the, maybe he said, Paul, you know, you need, a, you need a Greek name. You need a Roman name. Some scholars have even suggested maybe there was like a, an adoption that took place of, in sorts. And so Paul took on his name. But from this point forward, he takes the name of his very first convert. His, his name shifts right there. Now, the other part of the, to answer the second question, guess whose family was prominent in the city of Pisidian Antioch? Sergius Paulus. So they found inscriptions at Pisidian Antioch that say the name Sergius Paulus. There's three locations they found inscriptions. On Cyprus, says Sergius Paulus, so we know he was on Cyprus, at Antioch, or Pisidian Antioch, and then the third one, they have one in Rome. So Sergius Paulus's family is a prominent family at Pisidian Antioch. So this drives scholars to say, is it just coincidence that Paul, it's at this point in the text that Paul's name changes, and is it just coincidence that the very next place Paul heads to is Pisidian Antioch? And then you start to think, well, maybe those aren't just coincidences. Maybe Sergius Paulus said, look, Paul, you got to go talk to my family. I'm not going to be able to explain this to him. Go check out, you know, my family's in Ant- or Pisidian Antioch. Maybe he said, look, if, you, if this has implications for the Roman Empire, go check out Pisidian Antioch. It's just like Rome. You'll learn about Rome in a controlled environment before you get over to the... I, we don't know. It's, it's just coincidental. but it's at this point that his name changes, and the very next place he heads, which is totally out in the middle of nowhere, Pisidian Antioch. So one thing you'd want to you'd ask whenever you see a name change is the name, names in the Middle East or names in the East always are your destiny, right? So Jesus, Yeshua, God's salvation. Well, he is God's salvation, right? So his name means God's salvation. So Saul means asked for, some people say prayed for, but that's his, that's the given name. But Paul means small, maybe humble, right? So is the apostle Paul small? Like that's not his destiny. His destiny is not to be small. His destiny is to get to to Rome and talk to the emperor. So 
he's not taking the name as saying, this is going to be my destiny. He's taking the name, we think, as now he takes on a, a Greek name. And I, apparently many people in the East had both a Jewish name and a Greek name. And depending on who their audience is, they're going to use East. A lot of Eastern cultures are that way today. You're not going to, if you go to some places around Malaysia or in Indonesia, you'll never get their real name. You're going to get a fake name until they get close, close enough and trust you. So anyways, I just want to point that out because that's critical right here. The moment he meets Sergius Paulus, he takes off and he goes to the city where Sergius Paulus's family is from. Okay, so there's verse 14. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. Now, what's the first thing they do when they get to Pisidian Antioch? On the Sabbath day, they enter the synagogue. So, they, again, they don't go there right out into the Greek square and say, hey, we're here. They go into the synagogue, and they sit down, and of course, the people in the synagogue are going to ask them to stand up. Now, this is how Paul begins to address the crowd. This is verse 16 now. Okay, so verse 16, Paul stands up and look who's in the crowd. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and he said, fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God. So we've got both people in the audience. And now what he's going to do is he's going to give them an entire history lesson. One, you'll read it later, one Old Testament character after the next. What's really interesting is when he gets to King Saul, how God gave, or the people wanted a king, he gets to King Saul and he says, Saul, son of Kish from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, why does Paul add from the tribe of Benjamin? Well, where's Paul? What's Paul's tribe? He's, he's proud. He's got the same name as King Saul, and he's proud of his tribe, the tribe of Benjamin, which is a scrappy tribe, by the way. That's Paul fits the tribe of Benjamin. Um, so he mentions that, and you think, well, why did, why did Paul add that? Well, he's just pointing out, that's my tribe too. So he goes through this whole history lesson, and basically the point is, hey, throughout history, every time God did something, y'all didn't listen. So now Jesus is here, and you still aren't listening, so make sure you don't fall into that trap. And then towards the end, you know, kind of like that Dale Carnegie book, How to Win Friends and Influence Others, well, Paul's way is to say, he quotes something from the prophets that calls them scoffers, right? You don't want to be a scoffer. So Paul's way of influencing others is to insult them into getting them to think about things his way. So, okay, it's an amazing speech. Now, what we have to look at is what happens at the very end of that speech when the Sabbath service is over. Go down to verse 42, 13, 42, and look now at the order of the names as you come out. Paul and Barnabas, who's in the lead now? Paul is. So something switched, or at least Luke is telling you something switched. At that moment, Paul takes over. Maybe they figured out that Paul had a better way of, you know, a better command of, of the history and a, a way to express everything. Who knows? But you can see there's a shift. Important to note. Now, if I simply said to everybody here, 
okay, here's what happens. Paul goes into a synagogue. He tells everybody that Jesus is Messiah. And then I just said, tell me how they react, right? So most Christians, if you just hear Paul says to a group of Jews in a synagogue that Jesus is Messiah, they assume the very next thing is, we're going to take you out and stone you. Uh, we're going to drag you out of town. We're going we're to give you lashes or whatever. Because our assumption is they immediately hate the idea that Jesus is Messiah. That's kind of what we've been taught. But look what happens in verse 42. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further on the next Sabbath. They wanted to hear more. It's not that Jesus is Messiah that's so upsetting. What's upsetting to them is the Gentile business, because look what happens next. This is verse 44 to 45. This is critical for our understanding. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered. They've never had that many people show up to church before on a Saturday or the synagogue. And now you get somebody who comes into town, preaches about Jesus. It's about how Jesus is there. We're supposed to be the light to the Gentiles. And he quotes Isaiah to say, hey, the Gentiles are supposed to come in too. And the whole city shows up. Now, how, how is the leaders of the synagogue going to react when the whole city comes out to hear Paul speaking? Well, they're not happy about it, right? So they come out to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. And now things start to go awry. One thing we can note, too, and we'll talk more about this when we talk about this culture out in Galatia, is if the whole city, even all these Gentiles, are showing up to hear about this Messiah Jesus, it's going to upset everything in the city. Small town, isolated, they want to keep things going. So as the Jews rile up the leading people of the city, you can understand that they, have, they don't want their whole system upset by this guy, Paul, who comes in. So uh, they begin to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. So notice if Paul says, hey, they want, God wants the Gentiles to come in, they're going to contradict him and say, oh, no, that's not what God wants. So you can see that now there's a battle is ensuing. But the real key here is to note what's really underlying all of this is some kind of jealousy, at least according to Luke, is the way he's summarizing it. It wasn't so much Jesus as Messiah. You know, back in Israel, they didn't like that because the implications of Jesus as Messiah. But out here, Paul is suddenly creating an uncomfortableness that they're going to react against. So it's important that we pay attention to that as he goes from city to city. Um, he does the same thing in Ephesus. They're upset because people are leaving Artemis, and then they throw a fit and try to kill Paul. And so, anyways, really important to see all these details. So let me go real quick through a review of how this chapter just flowed so that we can see. I want you to go back and read the chapter again now that you've got some context of what's happening with some of these characters. But we start out, right, Barnabas and Saul, or Shaul. So he's still got his Jewish name, and he's second to Barnabas, who's in the lead. They go to Cyprus. Why would they go to Cyprus? That's where Barnabas is from. So it gives them support as they're going along. All missionaries need support along the way. 
They're going out. They're going to get support. They go to the synagogues. They go where the Old Testament is. As we, as we go through parts of the book of Acts, every single city he goes to, it's always the synagogue first. When the Bereans were more noble and read the text, it all, all that means is they didn't immediately throw a fit. They went in and researched their Old Testament. So they're going to the synagogues. Sergius Paulus, this is a big deal, high-ranking Roman official. His family's from Pisidian Antioch, and the moment Paul meets him, he switches his name, he takes on the name Paulus, and he heads to Ant Pisidian Antioch. So he goes to exactly the place where Sergius Paulus' family is from, and then, as the, you see, as this, as this whole thing is unfolding, you get to the very end, now he's called Paul, and Barnabas now shifts into the second side. And so we'll see over the course of the next few weeks, it's always going to be now Paul and Barnabas as they're moving along. So lots of detail that Luke is putting in there, and you really have to go to those questions. Why mention the change of Paul's name here? And why mention it right next to a guy named Sergius Paulus? So hopefully that adds some color to Acts chapter 13 and Paul going on his first missionary journey. Now, next week, we'll look at a number of things with the book of Acts that are really helpful, because we just started in chapter 13, which is actually the second half of the book of Acts. I'll talk through that next week, how scholars see that the book is structured. And then we'll talk about the culture of Galatia, right? What happens when an outsider shows up into a city and shakes things up, right? This is the the plot to a, every movie where there's a sheriff that says, you know, we like it, you know, we like our town the way it is, you know, and they throw the bum out, you know, past the city limits, something like that. So we'll look at that next week. And then, of course, we'll get to Lystra and why God keeps taking Paul to Lystra. So that's phase one, Pisidian Antioch. Thanks for joining us under the fig tree today for this lesson. Don't forget to go to our website, figtreeteaching.com, and sign up for our newsletter. We send out a newsletter twice per month to highlight videos and to provide you with a lesson plan to help you go deeper into your biblical studies. Our prayer at Fig Tree Ministries is that the more you understand the cultural and historical context that surrounds the words of the Bible, the deeper that you can take God's word and impart it into your life.